You're listening to The Naked Pravda. This is Medusa's first and only English language podcast, so please don't be shy about recommending us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. Welcome to the Naked Pravda. It's Friday, May 21st, and all of time is now merged, seamless blend, where day and night are one. The road signs we used to navigate the weeks are gone, and the changing seasons mock the unchanging routine that repeats day after day after day. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. And on this episode of The Naked Pravda, and on this show, we typically talk to guests about broader issues addressed in Medusa's own reporting. Sometimes, though, I like to break from that formula and do something else, which is what is happening today. Today's guest is Joshua Yaffa, the Moscow correspondent for The New Yorker. For his work in Russia, he has been named a fellow at New America, uh, he's been named a recipient of the American Academy's Berlin Prize, and also a finalist for the Livingston Award. Joshua is also the author of a recent book called Between Two Fires, colon, Truth, Ambition, and Compromise in Putin's Russia. In case you're wondering, there is a serial comma in that printed headline, which makes me very happy because I'm a serial comma guy, also known as the Oxford comma. Now, I'd play an excerpt from the Vampire Weekend song right here, but I don't have the rights to that. Those belong to Columbia Records. Now, about Between Two Fires. The book offers a look at Putin's Russia without focusing on Putin. Thank God. Joshua focuses on a handful of individual case studies profiling the moral choices of various individuals who have played unique and interesting roles in Russia in recent years. Penguin Random House, the book's publisher, has a very nice description of this, and I'm going to read a bit for you right here. Joshua Yaffa introduces readers to some of the country's most remarkable figures, from politicians and entrepreneurs to artists and historians who have built their careers and constructed their identities in the shadow of the Putin system. Torn between their own ambitions and the omnipresent demands of the state, each walks an individual path of compromise. Some muster cunning and cynicism to extract all manner of benefits and privileges from those in power. Others, finding themselves to be less adept, are left broken and demoralized. Oh, I sympathize with that, those, those folks. But what binds them together is the tangled web of dilemmas and contradictions they face. Okay, so hopefully your appetite is now whetted. Whether or not you've already read Between Two Fires, I think this interview should appeal simply because the concept of moral calculus in Putin's Russia or Yeltsin's Russia or Johnny Appleseed's Russia, it's an engaging topic. Moral trade-offs, that's the stuff of life. And I think it's a good prism for the ever-present dilemmas intellectuals and others face in Russia. So have a listen to the interview and hopefully you'll agree. The 
the first question I had was a very general one and hopefully not an obnoxious question, but what was your elevator pitch for this book? Presumably at some point you had the idea in your head, but not the book yet, and you needed to reach people that could make an actual book happen. How did you pitch it to somebody before you had it written? The idea developed in stages and I didn't have like a ready-made elevator pitch in one go that like sold the book in five minutes. It was more like almost a year of honing the proposal. So I'm, but I'm, I'm trying to think essentially it was a book about Putin's Russia with very little or no Putin that also scrambles or undermines or kind of directly attacks the notion of Russia as a place split between forces of good and forces of evil that actually the story of Russia like the story of basically every place is the story of all the people in between. And what is it like to actually be someone like that? And these people are a lot more like you, you as in, I don't know, you know, New York book editor, or just a familiar uh, archetype to a New York book editor, that these people are a lot more familiar and recognizable and similar to you than you might think. And the story of how they try to make something of their lives and adapt to the system that, that that's all while happening in a context that may seem foreign. These processes are somehow recognizably and compellingly human. How do you like when you, now the, now the book's written, obviously, where do you place it in the kind of like intellectual or area studies traditions? How do you view yourself and how do you view this book in the kind of pantheon of, of existing literature. I don't know if um, I'm, I'm sort of too in, in the middle of it to, to answer. And it also just feels sort of obnoxious to start saying, you know, it's like comparing it to works that have um, taught me so much and, and influenced this book, whether, you know, Lenin's tomb or Peter Pomerantsev's uh, from a few years ago, or the Putin biographies by Masha Guest and Stephen Lee Myers, my good friend, Sean Walker's book about Russia. So, I mean, I'm basically now just rambling often or rattling off every book about Russia that I've read in uh, the past, you know, years that's influenced me. I, I don't know, you know, what I would say it, it does different or in the way it's in dialogue with those books. I mean, it's not a Putin book, right? So it sort of offers something different than those books that are very much about him or very much about his system of governance. This also is, is a book about a system of governments, but it, but it's more about how that system actually works and, and sort of feels on the ground level. It's not about its administration and the Kremlin. It's about how do you incorporate that into your life and navigate it as a person who has some ambition and goals and all the totally universal, understandable things you and I have in our lives and, and our vision for sort of what we want to make of our life. Um, how do you accomplish that within that system? So it, it takes a more ground up approach, I guess. Does that make it kind of a work of anthropology. I don't, I don't know if that, that maybe is a loaded word in academic circles. I don't understand all of its implications, but maybe it's closer to that school than it is. Um, it's certainly not in the kind of great man of history school of Russia book, right? It does, it's, it's not like the uh, Gorbachev biography or like the Khrushchev biography or the great Stalin biographies by Stephen Kotkin, for example, or the Putin books I mentioned. So it's definitely doing something different there. And I guess like, you know, Sean's book come to mind because he's a good friend and I respect his work and in particular that book a lot. But there he had one kind of animating thesis about the use 
and and misuse of history, especially the history of World War II, as a foundational or unifying legend for Putin's Russia. And he kept returning to that idea over and over again. And it was the through line for the book. It was the kind of intellectual, provided the intellectual uh, spine for his journalistic travels and, and repertorial explorations of Russia. And, and maybe I did something similar with my idea of compromise and the uh, wily man idea that comes from the sociologist Yuri Levada. And I, I introduced that idea in the prologue. Maybe that I'm doing something similar, kind of taking that lens or that idea and then extending it out. When you were coming up with this or when you were being exposed to this wily man prism, as you were getting the idea to write a book that really kind of used moral calculus as the sort of basis to look at these kind of figures that you've you've uh, singled out for your for your book, are there any kind of memorable moments? Are there anecdotes that you can recall that kind of put you in a mind frame where you're thinking about the Russia experience? through this kind of moral calculus prism? Because it's very interesting, I think, to, to sort of view Russia this way. It's not the only way to view it, obviously, but it's, it's, it provides kind of, I don't know, a good insight into life under, if, if not Putin, then under you know, various power systems or something like this. And I'm wondering, you know, when you, you, when you first came to Russia, how long did it take in, until you started thinking of kind of life in these terms. Not that this is the only way you view it, but at what point did it crystallize in your mind that you thought, hey, I could I could write a book about these moral conundrums that people are clearly dealing with? I guess it depends on, on when you sort of backdate my experience in Russia too. I, I first set foot in Russia, as I talk about a bit in the book in, the, in that prologue, in um, 2001. So just at the dawn of the Putin, um, uh, the dawn of the Putin era. Um, and, you know, I was a student in college studying Russian uh, in St. Petersburg, and uh, I had certainly had no idea who Yuri Lovato was, let alone read any of his essays, including The Wily Man. So if, if we start, you know, at that age and go forward, it took me many, many years. I studied Russian in St. Petersburg, came back, finished college, lived in New York, went to grad school. I mean, lots was happening, lots of time passed, including lots of trips back to Russia, including already some as a young uh, journalist into, this is like mid-2000s, you know, approaching 2010. It was 2012 when I moved back to Moscow, or to Moscow, I guess you could say, to live and work full-time as a journalist. And that was already a different stage in my life, a different stage in Putin's Russia. It was the height of the Bolotnaya protests. And from then, I don't want to say it was it was quick, but, you know, it was coming out of the Bolotna protest where I began to understand that something was lacking in, in my own journalistic paradigm, that the the notion of kind of the oppressors versus the oppressed was very true. And that certainly was the political story of the Bolotnaya era um, and, and deserved all the kind of attention and press it got. But it also, I realized, had, had limitations in explaining what Russia was like really just on the level of like coming home to California or to New York where I lived for years before and, and meeting with friends and colleagues and just trying to explain to them what R Russia was like. This isn't even anything journalistically. It's not like about even the articles I was writing. It was just the conversations I was having and realized the articles that I was writing and so many of my colleagues were writing about Russia as this place where, you know, Putin and his cronies hold back 
demonstrators and protesters in the streets, like wasn't really getting across what Russia was really like. And, and, um, the stories of the people who, who live there and the people I knew in my kind of actual life, not just my journalistic life. So it was then that I realized something else might be useful and, and interesting in terms of explaining Russia. Uh, and it wasn't immediate that I settled on the Wiley Man idea. I'm cutting in here, folks. You might be wondering, what is the Wiley Man? Well, it's an essay written by Yuri Levada, a sociologist, which identified a new species, not Homo Sovieticus, but something more lasting and universal, I'm quoting here, more lasting and universal. The Russian wily man, Levada wrote, not only tolerates deception, but is willing to be deceived and even requires self-deception for the sake of his own self-preservation. I came across that essay quite fortuitously and, and by happenstance, and it, it suddenly had this uh, great explanatory power for me. It was kind of a eureka moment when someone handed me the Wiley Man essay, and I began to see, ah, maybe this actually is the way to make sense uh, of what I had been seeing around me and until then hadn't quite been able to put words to. But yeah, I guess I guess it, it was this feeling that I, I could feel that what I was writing wasn't totally getting across what I actually wanted to say, because when I would have those in-person conversations, I could see that, you know, going on what I had written, people still... I felt like there was still something I wasn't managing to, to get across. So you said that you'd come back to the States and you'd have conversations where you had to kind of explain Russia. I guess that's an interesting thought to me because, I don't know, I feel like I'm, I probably, I mean, I live in the United States and so I'm constantly having to explain to fellow Americans why I'm doing what I do, where I, you know, I'm writing and focusing about this place called Russia. But I guess it's interesting because I don't know if I feel the same compulsion to explain Russia like my I don't know like when when people kind of part of it is because I'm not sure I don't know if it can be explained I don't know do, do you feel like you've you said you had a eureka moment do you feel like you have indeed explained Russia because I, I view it more as like an interesting prism to kind of experience a certain aspect of it but I don't know if I walk away feeling like anything's been explained <laughs> no no not, not at all I'm glad you asked that clarifying question so I could walk back the grandiosity of my previous statement that was entirely accidental or, or unintended um, I meant more just the kind of conversations you inevitably have with friends and colleagues. You know, I'm back in town, whether that's San Diego or New York, and people are just like, so, you know, what's like? What's going on? Uh, see these protests. Read your article about the protests. Um, and I could feel that while I certainly stood by all that reporting on, on say, Bolotna, and that was, again, the, the, the central and most important political story of that moment, there were lots of other stories about people I knew Stories I had heard, circumstances of friends or friends of friends were in that wasn't quite captured in that dichotomy. The, the stories of people who were smart, ambitious, educated, talented, capable, who wanted to make something with their lives and, and put all those talents to use, but had to do so within the constraints of the system that they really couldn't change. I mean, you know, they, they, their kind of best and most productive years were going to be spent inside that system. And they weren't going to really change the character of that system, no matter what they did. So they sort of got to work figuring out how could they adapt, compromise as needed, and what were they willing to bend on, not bend on. And and those stories were just interesting to me. I, I just found them personally compelling. And, and also, I could tell that there was something sort of journalistically or writerly interesting about them, that they would make for good uh, narrative nonfiction. 
and I just like moral gray zones, I guess. I'm just less interested in moral absolutes. Uh, they exist. It's not like I reject the notion that there is, you know, good or evil and that one should, you know, call both of those things by their names. It's just, uh, I don't think that's the only way to explain life and, and, and neither, and, and not Russia either. And the more compelling stories, the one I, the ones I gravitated to were those in the middle where I, even for myself, like in retelling them, say to these friends and colleagues in New York or California, like I couldn't even figure out like who the good guy or the bad guy was, or like, was this person's behavior acceptable, certainly understandable, condonable, I don't know, but isn't that interesting to sit and, and think about? And like, that's what, you know, living in Putin's Russia is really like. Um, it's those sorts of sort of more subtle uh, and difficult choices that people confront on the day-to-day, not these like etched uh, in stark relief and in stone kind of moral choices that, that jump out to us and are more obvious. Do you think these problems that you describe, these sort of the moral conundrum of the of life under Putin, is this essentially kind of like a intelligentsia problem? Like, is this like the, the, the intellectual equivalent of a first world issue? Because, I mean, even Dr. Lisa, who I think sort of stands out as one of the like most compelling case studies that you do in the story of someone who has to kind of, you know, compromise while doing something noble. And in the by the end, it's very unclear what what happened exactly. Like, where did where did her, you know, where did her, her, uh, the soul of her, her operation finish? Even she openly rejects discussing the, her her actions in in abstractions right she's this she gives this kind of late interview where she she's clearly interested in the sort of concrete things that she can achieve and less so the moral implications i guess and so i wonder you know are these problems that you've identified are they intellectual for the intellectuals or are they actually universal? Like, is is uh, Joe Schmo who's pumping gas or whatever? Is this a problem for him in the Putin regime, or is it really something for kind of these high-minded intellectuals and public figures? The same in that regard is true in the Putin era as it was in the Soviet in Soviet times, which is that some of these questions are felt most acutely by the intelligentsia, whose talents are oftentimes most in demand um, by. The regime and and certainly can stand to benefit the most from the regime, especially when that state has monopoly of resources, especially in Soviet times when it was basically a true monopoly, right? If you're a writer or theater director or musician, if you want access to official platforms and distribution channels, the only way to do that is with uh, the state's uh, blessing. So that created all sorts of dilemmas that that become pretty quickly obvious. In some realms, that hasn't changed all that much in Putin uh, times. If you just look at where the resources are and where the opportunities are, those resources that are only held in, in one place, then yes, it makes those dilemmas especially acute for that contingent. But I don't think exclusive to them, and this is now the long way of answering your question, it may be most kind of sharply or, or very frequently felt by those communities. But but it's not exclusively, you know, the, the provenance of the intelligence. If you want to do something in business, quite often, you know, the question becomes, are you willing to play the game, as it were, with, you know, law enforcement or Siliviki, uh, the courts, regulators, right? Are, are you willing to look the other way or grease some palms or enter into some deals that you know maybe are in one way or another kind of shady, uh, let's say, but it's the only way 
to get that first loan you need for your business or to protect your business uh, from the kind of rapacious gaze of the state. And there's this business person in my book in Crimea, Oleg Zubkov, this very colorful zookeeper who many people have now taken to comparing to the, the Tiger King of, of Russia, the Tiger King of Crimea. And he indeed actually is kind of zany and kitschy in um, some of the same uh, ways. I don't think he would call himself an intelligentsia guy. I mean, he's a, uh, you know, wrestles in the grass with his tigers and is a zookeeper and businessman. And, um, you know, I don't know exactly the, the definition of intelligentsia and what qualifies someone to be in that category. Some of the people in positions of power that you even the, that you mentioned in your book, like for instance, um, Konstantin Ernst, they might not be experiencing the crisis of conscience that you you describe. You describe the crisis as like you know the balance uh, balancing the demands of your conscience with the opportunities of the moment. But when it comes to somebody like Ernst, and I assume many other figures in power, they don't see there doesn't seem to be a, a conflict there necessarily. And so I wonder. Do you think this does this does this uh, the prism that you've offered to view Putinism this this notion of of kind of like moral compromises and so on are there people that are outside of it who for whom there is no compromise and in fact they're living their dream kind of thing and I mean like do, is there does does this uh, this paradigm that you've given us do do you feel like there's anything outside of it that it doesn't capture or do you feel like it really is a universal? Cause I, you know, you, you, you thanks for, you, you answered the intellectual thing, certainly. But I mean, what about, what about people that for whom it doesn't appear to be any compromise necessary? Are there, are there people outside the paradigm you've given us? Yeah, tons. Uh, maybe the majority. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I, I just chose uh, this paradigm because it was interesting to me. And I thought kind of fruitful in a journalistic or writerly way. And I was interested, as I've said, in exactly these kind of, uh, tricky, complicated moral gray zones, but in no way do I um, proclaim that this captures the totality of of Russia. And in fact, you know, it le- yeah, it leaves out lots of people, and I left them out just because I thought it made for less interesting nonfiction literature. So, shall we say, there, there were lots of people who got left on the cutting room floor, who kind of who never made it past the casting stage, let's say, because I thought their compromises maybe weren't compromises at all, at all, as you've alluded to, or, or were driven by such clear, venal self-interest and cynicism that there wasn't anything interesting about them. They didn't present the same kind of conundrum as the people uh, whose stories I ultimately settled on for the book, I, I think and hope do. So there's, yeah, there's lots of people who just use their position in relation to or inside the Putin system to just further their own power interests, line their pockets. There's nothing kind of sincere or genuine about those pursuits. They were never driven by the kinds of uh, ambitions or, or, or sort of earnest notions of um, what was kind of good and worthy that I think my characters were. And, and again, I don't know if that's more than 50% or less, but I mean, it's, it's a lot of people. Um, uh, so there's, there's uh, no small number of people I say inside the system or adjacent to it who are playing various games that require no real great compromise at all. They're out there and they're they're just less interesting to me. So I didn't include them in in the book. I I wanted to settle on characters and spend time with characters who in the end kind of morally 
confounded me, let's say, people who I couldn't reach a clear verdict on. There's lots of people in Russia who I can very quickly, and I think sort of with reason, reach a quick verdict on, like, no, that person is just corrupt. Or or the opposite, no, that person is is is, uh, is really kind of um, uncorruptible and, and, and um, without compromise and living his or her principles in a really um, steadfast and, and stubborn way. And, and so I... I purposely excluded both of those extremes, but that doesn't at all mean they're not out there. The, the last question I had was, do you think that the the compromises that you've identified, are they becoming harder as the sort of, as the Putin regime ossifies or ages or reaches its late state? I don't know what stage of late Putinism we're in now. It's like the fifth. Who knows? Maybe, maybe we're just in the middle, actually, by the time it's all over. Yeah, honestly. <laughs> but like in terms of, in terms of the, the, the state as it's, you know, existed under Putin and maybe even the changes that are, have been rolling out under the pandemic and that may remain like, do you view the moral calculus? Is it becoming more complicated? Do you think, or if indeed the regime is, you know, coming to an end and presumably there's some kind of liberalization on the horizon, you know, if that's indeed what would follow, does that imply that the calculus is going to become easier? Like what do you, in terms of the future of this, prism you've given us like how do you see it developing well first i guess i should say is one of the attractions of journalism is the ability to describe the past without having to prognosticate about the future so normally i um try and avoid doing exactly that simply because i don't trust my own abilities to um get it right well the books the book's been out now for a bit and there's in the time since it's been published do you feel like you're your, uh... I, I, and, I, and I should say, I was, I was only sort of getting myself war- warmed up, which is that um, uh, perhaps out of, you know, I don't know, publisher or commercial demand to the extent there was or is any. Uh, in the epilogue of the book, I do touch on this notion of kind of what the future holds for not just Putin's Russia, but but more specifically, you know, this notion of compromise and, and the wily man or, or woman. And it does seem to me that as late stage, if that indeed is the case, Putinism advances, it's gotten less flexible, more um, kind of uh, rigid. It's lost some of this big tent quality I think it had in its early days. All of that was a feature of this kind of carnival early or mid-stage Putinism that um, really was described in all of its kind of postmodern kaleidoscopic glory by Peter Pomerantsev in his first first book, Captured That Moment Really Well, you know, that allowed for the wily man or woman to really flourish in a way and, and make the most of that, not even alliance, I guess, but more kind of dalliance with the state. That moment has really passed. You, you don't see the Kremlin having that same kind of um, expansive, diverse, kaleidoscopic flexibility. It's become much more rigid and um, exclusionary, I guess you could say. And it's it's lessened the opportunities and benefits of compromise at the same time that the sort of penalties for veering from compromise have, have gone up. There was just this give and take and this kind of winking, again, very postmodern relationship between, say, the Kremlin and avant-garde artists, where the Kremlin could bestow kind of favors and largesse on them. The artists could accept those favors, but also maybe tell the Kremlin uh, to get lost without great consequence. And, you know, just that whole window of opportunity like that has narrowed or maybe actually been taken away 
entirely. So like I said, there are just less kind of benefits on offer for those willing to make those compromises and, and for those not willing to make the compromises, the, the stakes or the consequences have gone up. So it just feels like the calculus has become much sharper. It's, it's, it's harder and, and requires more of you to be a wily man or, or woman today than I think it did five or 10 years ago. You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, an English-language podcast from Medusa. On today's show, we heard from Joshua Yaffa, the Moscow correspondent for The New Yorker, and the author of the new book, Between Two Fires, Truth, Ambition, and Compromise in Putin's Russia, which you can find in hardcover, paperback, and ebook format at Amazon.com and anywhere books are sold. If you buy brand new, incidentally, the hardcover will set you back exactly one extra penny. So bear that in mind. The Naked Pravda is a podcast from Medusa. It's our first English language show. And I hope you'll recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever the heck you're tuning in to help put this program in front of more people. Thank you for listening and come back soon. Mm-hmm.